Okay, can you guys turn to uh, page 4 in your bulletins? The preaching text you'll find is in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21, and I'll, I'll read it for you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the, head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you Love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God. So, uh, for those of you guys who are visitors, uh, we are now uh, well into um, a series on marriage. This is the fifth message, in fact. And just, by, uh, just to review what we talked about last week, right? we looked at the fact that marriage is a journey to holiness. Right? It's a vehicle for our sanctification. And an illustration of this is that marriage is like a gem tumbler, right? Um, do you guys know how the gem tumbler works? See, what you do is you, you find this raw gem, and it has all these rough edges and, and imperfections, and you place it in the tumbler, and you turn it on, right? And the tumbler begins to turn, and all the little beads begin to wear away at the gem. And then after a long time, you take the gem out, and now it's this perfectly rounded uh, shaped gem. And so it is with marriage, right? That all of our imperfections and our rough edges are being slowly worn away. And uh, someone actually said this to me uh, through the series. They said, you know, now that we've been talking about marriage uh, for so much, I'm not sure I want to be married anymore. (laughs) You know, you sort of sucked out all the romanticism out of it. And, you know, that's true. Christianity, you know, doesn't have this kind of sweet, sentimental saccharine movie version that Hollywood turns out. You know, marriage is not this fairy tale of Prince Charming sweeping in, um, rescuing us, and then we're going to live happily ever after, and it's going to be just butterflies and cupcakes every day, right? Christianity recognizes the gritty reality of it all, right? That marriage is hard, right? It's blood and sweat and tears, and, and it's arguments and conflicts And it's two sinners, maybe for the very first time, forced, forced to deal with their selfishness. And uh, maybe at night, (laughs) you will find yourself lying there in bed, and uh, after a long, hard day's work of marriage, and maybe the only thing you can remember from this series is the verse, this is a profound mystery. (laughs) And I think that's so true, because the Christian vision of marriage is that Marriage is more than just about marriage. It points to something deeper. There's a greater reality, and I think that is so encouraging because 
we know that there is a deeper purpose and meaning to it. And we're going to look at another aspect today. We're going to look at uh, marriage as one flesh. And we're going to focus in on verse 31 where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so we're going to break it down in four parts. Okay? And so here's the outline. Part number one, we're going to look at uh, uh, how one flesh teaches us that it's a life bound together. Point number two, we're going to see the priority of marriage. Point number three, we're going to talk about sex and marriage. And then point number four, we're going to talk about what does that teach us about union with Christ. All right, so let's begin. First point, very quick, a life bound together. So what does it mean when the Bible teaches us that marriage is one flesh? It means very simply this, that whereas there were two, now it's just one. Okay? That you're going out into the world not as separate individuals, but as a unit. Right? And the illustration that I heard that I thought was pretty good is that marriage is like a three-legged race. Right? Imagine that, you know, a lifelong three-legged la- race. And what that means is that you can no longer just you know, do your own business, attend to your own concerns, but now you're bound to somebody else, right? And I think uh, maybe the best expression, the most poetic expression of this is found in the Song of Songs, which is a book in the Old Testament. And uh, it's basically an entire book on marital love. And there's this line that keeps repeating. It's, it's kind of like a chorus, and it goes like this, and I think it's perfect. It says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, right? I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And what that means is that there is no longer in marriage yours and mine, but only ours, right? All that is yours is mine, and all that is mine is yours, right? How does that work out practically? Well, uh, when Christine and I got married, we had uh, very different financial situations. Um, I was in seminary, right? And uh, I had a, a quite a sizable debt from college and accumulating debt from seminary. And Christina had no debts. And uh, I, because I was in seminary, I didn't have a job. And what little savings that I had was quickly dwindling. But Christina had substantial savings and she had a job, right? And so when we got married, what happened is, one flesh, all my debts became hers. And all her wealth and assets became mine. Okay? And some of you are saying, that seems like a very raw deal for Christina. And uh, I would just say to you that, hey, I had my own maybe intangible heart to define assets that I brought into the marriage, you know? But that's what one flesh marriage is. You're no longer two but one. And that's true not just financially, but that's true socially, emotionally, psychologically, so that whatever one person has, you know, in terms of family baggage, in terms of emotional problems, in terms of psychological issues, now it's both of your concerns, right? That's what one flesh marriage means, right? I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, okay? So that's the first point. Very simple, very quick. All right, second point is what does that mean for the priority of marriage? Well, because your life is now bound up with someone else, right? Uh, That means that that relationship is and should be the priority in your life. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 31, the first half. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, what's really interesting about that is in ancient Israelite society, 
a man didn't actually move away from his parents. Okay? When he got married, what actually happened was his wife would come and live with him and they would live on the family homestead and kind of work the land until one day they would inherit the property. So then what is this verse saying? A man shall leave his father and mother. What this is saying is that when a man gets married, and this applies to wives too, when a man gets married, his primary responsibility and attention is no longer with his parents, but with his wife, right? That's what it means that he will leave his father and mother. And you need to understand what a shocking and radical statement that was in a traditional society. Because in a traditional society, the most important relationship is with your parents, right? The most important thing that you owe to your parents, particularly your father, is you owe him your obedience, your loyalty, your devotion, right? You, the very purpose of your life was to please and serve your parents. And against that traditionalism, the Bible says, no. No, right? that the marriage relationship supersedes the parent-child relationship. It, that's amazing, you know? That's shocking. Now, what does that mean for us? Let me translate that in modern terms. What that means is that your marriage relationship is more important than any other relationship in your life. Your marriage relationship is more important than your relationship with your employer, with your coworkers, with your friends, right? with your parents, even your children, right? Because your relationship with your children, as intense and as needy as it is, is temporary, right? What's the goal of, of parenting? That your, your children will cling on to you forever? I hope not. But that one day your children will stand on their own, right? But your relationship with your spouse is lifelong, it's permanent. Now, how do you know that you're making your marriage the priority. You know, how do you know? Very simple test. Okay, very simple test. Ask your spouse. Ask your spouse, am I making this relationship the priority in my life? Am I more committed to you than I am to my career, than to my friends, than to my hobbies? And I suspect that for many of us, the answer will be sobering. Because for many of us, we don't make our marriage the priority in our lives, right? For many of us, we kind of have this, especially the husbands, we have this kind of lackadaisical attitude towards marriage, you know? And, you know, we, when, you know, pursuing marriage, trying to get marriage, we pour enormous energy and effort and time into getting married. But it's kind of like once you get married, it's like check that off the list. And now we sort of move on to bigger and greater things in life, right? Or what we think is bigger and greater, but don't you realize, don't you realize that marriage is one flesh? And that's why the Apostle Paul writes in verse 28, he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. What is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying that when you experience marriage, right, you will love and care for your wife like you love and care for yourself. 
To pay attention to your spouse, to your wife, is to pay attention to your very own body. And that's why I love the way the Apostle Paul continues in verse 29. He says, just as Christ does the church, because we are what? Members of his body. What is Paul saying? He's giving us a metaphor to understand marriage. He's giving us a metaphor to understand. He's saying, if you are married, your husband, your wife, is like your own body. And here's how it works, right? Imagine you get into an accident one day and you sustain a horrible deep gash in your arm and it's like bleeding and, you know, it's like infected and festering. Would you look at your arm and say, you know what, I have a really important work project. I really need to finish it. I'm sure my arm will be okay. (laughs) No, what would you say? You would say, ow, right, ow, and you would drop everything you have And you would run like mad to the hospital, and until your arm is okay, you're not okay, right? Do you look at your spouse in the same way? Do you love your husband or your wife with the same passion and focus and intensity that you do with your own body? Because don't you see, marriage is one flesh. You're no longer two, but you're one. I and my beloved's my beloved is mine. All right, so that's the priority of marriage. And then the third point is sex and marriage. And uh, we're going to spend the bulk of our time here today, and, you know, maybe some of you are straightening up at this point. Okay, we're going to talk about sex and marriage. Now, on this issue of sex, I know that a lot of people, a lot of people have major, major hang-ups with Christianity. And it's true, you know, Christianity has a very hard and uncompromising and maybe we can say difficult position on sex, okay? Because the Bible says very unambiguously that sex is only for marriage. And that in marriage, you are to be completely faithful to your spouse. That means no sex outside of marriage. And until you get married, total abstinence. Total abstinence. And if you never get married lifelong abstinence, okay? That's the biblical position. And I know, you know, in today's world, to the modern ear, that sounds ridiculous, right? That sounds unreasonable and maybe even unhealthy, but consider this. We live in a culture just saturated and drenched in sex, you know? And I'm not just talking about explicit explicit scenes in movies or, you know, what's available on the Internet, but I'm talking about the fact that sex... And sexuality is just everywhere. It's ubiquitous. You know, it's all, it's splashed all over the world in billboards and magazines, on radios and newspapers. And what is the message that the, our culture is bombarding with, bombarding us with every single moment of every day? It's saying that whatever your sexual desires, you should indulge in them, right? Whatever they may, whatever they may be, you should, you should, find a release for them because it is bad to be repressed. It is bad to be frustrated, right? And so the world tells us that we have these sexual appetites. And when you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. And when you're aroused, what should you do? You should find sexual release. Now, either Christianity or our culture is very, very, very wrong on sex, right? Either Christianity is right and our culture is profoundly messed up 
or our culture is right and Christianity is but a relic of the past. Well, which is it? Well, I know you guys are saying, well, you're a pastor. (laughs) So I know what you're going to say, and you're kind of sort of anticipating uh, the argument. But let me try to offer, if I can, a fresh perspective, okay? There's a chapter that C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. And I think he has something really, he has a really unique take on it. He makes the argument that we should not trust our sexual appetites and, and desires, that they're deeply disordered. And he gives this illustration. He says, imagine you go to this country. And in this country, all the young men, when they go off to college, put up posters in their dorm rooms, pictures of slices of chocolate cake and platefuls of chicken casserole and, and ice cream with gooey, syrupy chocolate cream all over it, right? And the guys will go into each other's room and they'll like leer at the posters and they'll say, wow, look at those morsels. Look at those crumbs, you know? And then at night, the men of the city gather in these nightclubs and the lights are turned low and the music is throbbing and on the center stage, a curtain is slowly raised to reveal a lamb chop. And all the room explodes with with cheers and whistles and hooting. What would you say of such a country? You would say, these people must be starving, right? They must be starving. That's the only natural conclusion you can make. But when you actually observe their lives, you notice they have plenty of food at home. And you talk with the citizens of the land, and they will tell you, that they are eating more food than they have ever done before in their lives, in the history of that country. And then the only natural conclusion is this, that these people have a deeply disordered relationship with food. Right? They have a deeply disordered relationship with food, that something has gone awry, something is broken. And C.S. Lewis says, so it is with sex. Because you see, Christianity says that sex is one of the most profound and powerful and beautiful things in the human experience, but because we have abused it, it's now twisted and distorted. Well, what is the Christian position on sex? Well, two parts to it, okay? So listen carefully. Two parts. The Christian position on sex. The first thing you need to know, and this is very important, very foundational, is that Christianity says that sex is not something that is dirty. It's not something that is kind of defiling and debased and something like, you know, that you should be ashamed of. In fact, okay, and I know this is hard to believe because the world tells us otherwise. In fact, Christianity has the most, the most celebratory and positive view on sex possible. Okay, let me prove it to you. Okay, let me prove it to you. Let me take you to Song of Songs, which I've mentioned before, right? A book in the Old Testament. And the Song of Songs is one long, extended, erotic love poem, okay? And so let me read you just a, 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 a snippet of this poem, of this dialogue between the husband and his wife, okay? And they're, and they're going back and forth. And let me read you from chapter 7. This is what the husband says to his wife. He says, How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O queenly maiden. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a skilled craftsman. Your navel is as delicious as a goblet filled with wine. 
Your belly is lovely, like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your breasts are like twin fawns of a gazelle. How delightful you are, my beloved. How pleasant for utter delight. You are tall and slim like a palm tree, and your, and your breasts are like clusters of dates. And I said to myself, I will climb up into the palm tree and take hold of its branches. Now may your breasts be like grape clusters and the scent of your breath like apples. May your kisses be as exciting as the best wine, smooth and sweet, flowing gently over lips and teeth. Now I've just read uh, just a small snippet. It goes on like this for eight chapters, you know. You guys want to apply the Bible in your life. For those of you married couples, you know, read this to your spouse in bed and, you know, see what happens, right? Is this not a celebration of all the pleasure and sensuality that sex has to offer? Right? What do you think the author is saying when he says, you are like a palm tree and I will climb up and grab a hold of its branches? What do you think the author is talking about? I mean, listen to the sensual language. Your navel is like a goblet of wine. Your kisses are as exciting as the best wine. You see, this is a picture of how satisfying and richly erotic sex can be when it is enjoyed in the context God intended it. And so therefore, no one can tell me that Christianity is dour and down on sex. No one can tell me that is a lie the world has pulled over our eyes to make us believe that Christianity is all about repression and unfulfilled desires and that the only way you can find fulfillment sexually is you need to go the way of the world. But that is a lie. That is a lie. Christianity is the most positive on sex. So that's the first point. And then the second point, and here's you know, the point of the purpose of sex. The purpose of sex, okay, listen, the purpose of sex is one flesh bonding, okay? The purpose of sex is one flesh bonding so that when a married couple experiences sex, right, they're experiencing the unity and the oneness on a physical level of what marriage is. You see, Bible says that sex is not just some mere physical act without deeper meaning. But what sex does is it meshes two people together. It, it intertwines two souls. And all the movies recognize this. It does, okay? Because you have movies where even when a character explores the possibility of sex without meaning, what happens? It never works out. It never works out because sex always has a deeper meaning. There's a movie that was released about 10 years ago called Vanilla Sky. And in Vanilla Sky, it's the story of, of a man played by Tom Cruise, of course, um, who has, you know, he's kind of a millionaire and he has kind of like, you know, kind of this casual attitude towards sex. And then he has this relationship with this woman played by Cameron Diaz. And, you know, and he has sort of like you know, a casual sexual relationship with her. But then one day, he meets this beautiful woman who dazzles him, played by Penelope Cruz, and he falls in love head over heels, and he pursues this relationship with her. 
And what happens in the movie is that Cameron Diaz finds out about that relationship, you know, and she gets jealous, and she confronts Tom Cruise, right? And it's sort of one of the climactic scenes in the movie. And she says this line that's really so arresting, and this is what she says, listen. She says, don't you realize that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, whether you do or not, that is absolutely right. That is absolutely right. And that's why I think the best metaphor for sex is superglue. <laughs> right? Because superglue, like sex, binds two people together. And that's why if you've ever been involved sexually with someone and you break up, what does it feel like? It feels almost literally like you're being torn apart. It feels like the other person has taken a piece of you because what did you do? You pulled out the superglue, right? And that's why the Bible says sex is only for marriage because you only use the superglue when you want something permanent, right? And that's why sex before marriage is like using superglue when you haven't quite made up your mind. I mean, imagine you're working on some project, right? And you're moving the pieces around, trying to figure out what you want. Only a daft fool would use super glue in that situation. But people do. And when you use super glue, right, like that, when you abuse super glue like that, what will happen? The glue begins to lose its stickiness, right? And that's why people who have had multiple partners, for them, sex begins to lose its meaning. And I think that's such a deep tragedy. And that's why the Bible has all of these prohibitions around sex, because it's protecting the power and beauty and significance of sex. Do you think that God is trying to keep something good from you? He's not. He wants your ultimate happiness and flourishing, and therefore God wants you to enjoy the deeply satisfying and, 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 and enjoyment that se- marital sex can be for you if you would just listen to him. Let me give you another reason why um, sex before marriage is such a transgression of the very purpose of, of, and meaning of sex. When someone says to you, I want to have sex with you, but I don't want to be married with you, What they're really saying is, I want to be naked with you, physically, but I don't want to be naked with you financially. I don't want to be naked with you emotionally and psychologically, right? When someone says that, right, what they're saying is, you know, I don't want to be that vulnerable and open and exposed to you. I just want to do that with my body. You know, and when you when someone says that to you, or when if you say that to somebody, what you're really saying is, I just want to use you. I don't really love you. I just want the cheap thrills. You see, if you are willing to be naked with someone physically, why don't you go all the way? Why don't you be naked with them emotionally and psychologically and financially and socially? All the way, make the commitment of lifelong exclusive love which is marriage. And so that's what sex is. Sex is the capstone on one flesh marriage. And I think that's why it's so beautiful that out of sex comes children, you know? 
Don't you see how fitting and, and just appropriate it is? Because think about it, right? Out of this climactic uh, act of one flesh commitment and unity, God gives us children to love and to cherish, right? And that's why whenever there's a pregnancy outside of marriage, in some sense, it's always tragic. You know why? Because what that says, what that really means is that the father is saying to his child, I'm not really willing to commit to you. I'm not really willing to to make that lifelong commitment that you need from me because all children want, and I know this because I'm a child of divorce, what all children want is they want their mother and their father to love each other and to be together and together to be a family. And so sex okay, is the capstone, is the, is the physical combination, it's the physical sealing agent of one flesh marriage. And therefore, don't you see that that is the most beautiful and, and positive view of sex, you know? All right. Uncomfortable time over. (laughs) You can breathe now. Point number four. Um, What does one flesh marriage teach us about union with Christ? Well, let's look again at verse 31. And by this time, it should be like an old friend, you know? We should have this memorized. I should have you guys recite it right now, all right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And I've said this before, right? But Paul is doing a quotation of Genesis 2.24, right? That's why in the passage it's in quotes. This is Genesis 2.24, and then Paul continues on in verse 32, commenting on that passage. And this is what he says, right? He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What's going on? You see, Paul is talking about marriage uh, all through Ephesians 5. And it's not like he's saying, you know, marriage, marriage, marriage. What would be a great illustration? You know, hmm, he's kind of fishing around. He's like, I know. It's kind of like Christ and the church. No. Paul is saying something far more profound. He's saying that from the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, when God created marriage, he had us in mind that he knew all along that it was his plan all along that Jesus would come and rescue us. And with that thought in mind, with that plan in mind, God created one flesh marriage as a signpost, right? As this kind of metaphor, as this living uh, parable so that as we experience marriage, as we, we, we live and get married, God could say to us, now you know. Now you know what union with Christ is. Now you know what salvation is. Because you see, salvation is union with Christ. I know that uh, that may be a novel way of hearing about the gospel, right? Maybe a lot of you, for you, this is, this is a brand new paradigm, a brand new perspective. Salvation is union with Christ. One of the foundational doctrines in the church. What is union with Christ? It's a term that theologians use. They're trying to wrap their minds around this language that you see over and over and over again in the New Testament. Again and again, dozens of times, it says that we are in Christ. Okay, We are in Christ. Not just simply that we are followers of Christ, 
that we believe Christ, not simply that we love Christ, but we are in Christ. In Christ. That's union language. And that's what Jesus is referring to in John 15 when he says, abide in me. Right? Think through the metaphor. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. That's what the Apostle Paul means in Galatians 2.20 when he says, we have been crucified with Christ. I mean, have you thought of that statement? I mean, were we historically there in our physical persons at the cross? No. But because of our union with Christ, because we are in Christ, Paul says, we were crucified with him. That's why in uh, Romans 6.11, Paul says, you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is all this language trying to get at? And here, we are at the very limits of language. We are at the very precipice of a deep mystery. Union with Christ. But God gives us marriage to help us understand. Because you see, what this means is that because we're in Christ, because of our union with him, all of our debts and sins are credited to Christ. And all of his merits and righteousness is credited to us. Do you see? That's what one flesh marriage means. So that Jesus Christ, as our bridegroom, as our husband, says to us, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Right? Those are his lines. Those are his words. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine, so that all that is mine is now yours. All of my righteousness, my perfect obedience, so that when the Father sees me, he is pleased, and he welcomes me into his embrace. Jesus says, that is yours. And all that is yours is now mine. All of your sin and guilt and shame and the death you deserve, I will take. It's now mine. That's one flesh marriage. And now we understand that when God gives us a story like Hosea and Gomer, right? We looked at this several weeks ago. The prophet Hosea marries the prostitute Gomer. Now we understand when God says, that is how I save you. That is my relationship with you. That is how I love you. You see, God doesn't just love us abstractly as some kind of distant deity, but he comes down and he loves us like a husband loves his wife. He loves us with marital love, though we are weak and fallen and though we have been unfaithful. And that is salvation. You see, marriage helps us understand salvation. So that's, that's the whole point of the series. Did you guys think that we started this series so I can give you helpful marital tips? I don't know. I'm not any marital guru. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> the whole point of this series is that marriage teaches us about the gospel. That's the whole point. Marriage teaches us about the gospel. And so when you see marriage, now you understand. Now you understand how we're saved, how God loves us. Do you see that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this beautiful portrait of marriage that you give us. And we pray that uh, for those of us who are single, we pray that uh, we would have a very serious 
attitude towards marriage, knowing uh, what it is, an exclusive, lifelong commitment. And it's a picture of Christ. And for those of us who are married, we pray that we would remember what one flesh unity means, that we accept and absorb and, and embrace all of our spouse's weaknesses and failings and sins because that's the gospel. That's what gospel reenactment means. And, and so we pray that you would give us the strength and the desire to do this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.